She punted Chaz her Packers shirt on. So Packers are still in it. Go Cheeseheads. Most of you probably between Christmas Eve and now have picked up one of these books. But if you have not, I'll be back in the entryway after service today. I want to make sure everybody gets one of these if you would like. It's a book, a little booklet I wrote called Without Seizing uh, Devotional Teachings on Prayer. So if you have not got one of these, look for me in the entryway as you leave today, and I'll make sure that you get one. Also, with that emphasis on prayer, the daily devotional this year, if you have not signed up for it already, you can go to our website and sign up for it very easily. It's simply, this year, a series of prayers. Each day is a prayer that I have written Um, And the prayer is based upon my daily reading from the Scriptures. I, for the past 25 years, have done uh, a read through the Bible in a year. And last year, as I went through, I wrote prayers out. So it's just designed to uh, encourage you and maybe speak to you, uh, perhaps inform you a little bit about praying and praying the Word of God. So really want to get all of us praying in 2017. Nothing changes without prayer preceding the change in the kingdom of God. So we are in Philippians chapter 3, and today we are going to do part two of what I've titled Finding Joy in Knowing the Truth. And we'll do part three next week, but it's all out of chapter three in the book of Philippians. But before we go there, Jason, if you would project Matthew 13, 44, and 45. Jesus here is telling a parable, and he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. So, the point of the parable is when you find something of great value, you take whatever steps necessary to ensure that you are able to maintain possession of that of great value. And that is exactly what truth is. Now, we live in a culture where truth is not highly prized, at least in an absolute sense. There's this notion of relative truth, that truth is sort of a, a moving target and shifts depending upon the circumstance, depending upon the person, depending upon the culture. But the Bible doesn't know anything of relative truth. The Bible speaks of absolute truth in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so when we find the truth, when we come face-to-face with absolute truth in the person of Jesus Christ. It's like the pearl of great price. We ought to do whatever is necessary to ensure that we possess that truth and that we maintain possession of that truth. And that's what Paul is talking to the Philippians about. 
in the early church, and it's really no different than it is today, it's really the nature of humanity. It, it really began in the garden with the serpent challenging God's word when he said to Eve, has God really said that you are not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? There's that little subtle deception that leads to a gigantic fall. And in the early church, after Paul would go out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection from the dead, through simple faith in what Jesus has done, that we can be forgiven of our sins, that we can receive new life, and that we can have the hope of the assurance of an eternal life with God in heaven. Paul would share this truth. But then there were what were called Judaizers or people who would follow after Paul into whatever community he had preached the gospel. And they would say, yes, the message Paul is telling you is true. Jesus did come. In fact, he did die on a cross and rise from the dead. However, he, Paul has not given you the entire message. For in fact, in order to be saved, you have to be circumcised according to the law of Moses. And you have to become a Jew and keep the law if you truly want to be saved. So they were adulterating the, the simple message of the gospel. And Paul, in the first couple of verses here, challenges that. In fact, listen to the language that he uses. He says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. So he is warning the Philippians against the false message of having to do anything else in order to be saved from your sin. Paul contrasts the false message of the Judaizers with the truth. We are of the true circumcision who serve God by his spirit, who boast only in Jesus Christ and place no confidence in the flesh. So there's a sharp division between the simple message of the gospel and anything else. Once you add anything else to the simple message of salvation by grace through faith, it gets very, very confusing. Now, we don't necessarily have Judaizers following us around these days, but there are a lot of messages and a lot of Christian churches that proclaim messages very similar to this. In order to be saved, you have to be baptized in our church. If you haven't been baptized, you are not truly saved. Or if you have not been immersed, if you were only sprinkled, then you're not truly saved. Or if you have not spoken in tongues, then you are not truly saved. I mean, the list can go on and on and on. But whatever it is, if you add anything to the simple message of salvation by grace through faith, you are on a path ultimately to shipwreck. I was reading that, and Gary Hammontree would know this, but if you are a pilot and you are taking off from Los Angeles, heading toward Hawaii, and your instruments are off by just one degree. 
that you will not land in Hawaii, but somewhere in the ocean. For every mile that you travel that one degree off course, it's 92 feet that it takes you away from your target. So over the, the course of several hundred miles, you're going to be several hundred feet off course. But it's just one degree. It's not that much. But that's how it is with the gospel. We, we, we introduce just a little sliver of something else adding to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then that little sliver grows into something much more profound and ruinous. Christy and I went on a trip once. Our daughter was on a missions trip with the Young Continentals, and she was going to sing up in Burley, Idaho. And Christy and I had just gotten an RV, so we were going to go up there. We were going to meet her, watch her perform, and camp out. And we had arranged to stay at a place called the Wasatch State Park. And this was in the days when Google Maps was just sort of getting started. And so I had gone onto my computer, and I had printed out the directions to this uh, state park. And Christy and I are driving up to the state park, and we've got our trailer in tow. And of course, I'm, I'm not, this is like the first larger trailer that I'm pulling, right? You know, everything up to that point had been much smaller. So we're going up this curvy dirt road. I'm thinking, well, this is odd, but this is the directions. This is what it says. And so finally, after about 18 curves, we get to a point where I told Christy, I said, if we don't turn around now, there is no turning and as it happens, we were on the wrong road. The map that I had printed out uh, on uh, the computer was absolutely incorrect. And I was following it faithfully, but it would have taken me to who knows where. And <laughs> when I had to turn my, my trailer around on this curvy road, it took me about 25 times of forward, back, forward, back forward, back, to try to get it around. So the point being is truth matters. It really is important what you believe. Yes, in Christianity, love is supreme. But love without truth is sort of like our bodies without the skeletal system. Without the skeletal system, our bodies would just be a blob on the ground. Truth is what supports the love that we convey to the world. And we have to make sure that our message is on the mark. Paul says now in verse 4, he says, for those who boast in the flesh, or that is to say boast in anything that you have to do in order to secure your salvation. Paul says, to those who boast in the flesh, I, beyond any of you, would have more reasons for such confidence. If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So, ritualistically, Paul was a Jew. Ethnically, Paul was a Jew. Culturally, Paul was a Jew. Religiously, Paul was a Jew. Zealously, Paul was a Jew. And legally, 
Paul was a Jew. Everything that a Jew could look for, for righteousness based upon their position as a Jew, Paul possessed. And yet, Paul writes these words, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So Paul here uses accounting terms, essentially a ledger. He says, over here in this column, I have everything that I have done or possessed in the flesh, circumcised on the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, zealous for the law, righteous based upon the law. All of these things Paul puts in this column. And then he compares that to the value of knowing Jesus Christ by faith. The simplicity of gospel and the righteousness that we obtain when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul compares these two values and he looks at everything he's done, everything he possesses, and he says, it's a pile of dung. Literally, that's what the word means here that is translated garbage. It, it, that's, it's no better than that. Everything I possess in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ and being able to possess a righteousness based on his work, everything I can do is without value. What good is being circumcised on the eighth day in comparison to knowing the King of kings and the Lord of lords? What good is being a Hebrew of Hebrews in comparison to experiencing eternal life with Jesus Christ? There's no comparison. That is Paul's point. And Paul says that he wants to know Jesus Christ and being found in him being baptized into or immersed into the body of Christ. And that's what happens when you and I convey or express our faith in Jesus Christ. The moment that a sinner hears the gospel and their heart is pricked and they repent of their sin, they recognize that they are a sinner and they say, I repent of my sin. I express faith in or I trust in Jesus Christ and the work that he has done. I believe that. There is a spiritual transaction that occurs. All of your sin is forgiven. It was placed on the cross at Calvary. And all of the righteousness that Jesus possessed, His perfect righteousness, is then conveyed upon us, upon that sinner. And we are baptized or immersed into the body of Christ. So then that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours in Christ Jesus. Everything that Jesus possesses is yours because you are baptized in Him. And that is what Paul says is the great value 
I want to gain Christ, being found in him, not having my own righteousness, but the righteousness that comes from him. You see, Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He was born of a virgin, so he was not conceived with original sin. He lived a life in perfect obedience to the Father. Whatsoever I see the Father doing, Jesus said, that I do. So Jesus was without sin. He had a perfect righteousness because he was God and man. This is the gospel. So his perfect righteousness is conveyed upon us when we believe. No matter how good a life you have lived, no matter how wonderful the works you have done are, if you have not believed in Jesus Christ, if you have not trusted in the simple message of the gospel, you are lost in sin that will separate you from God and ultimately condemn you to a devil's hell for eternity. There are some people that I've known through my life who are amazing, wonderful people, but who have not trusted Christ. People whose righteousness, if I were to compare myself to, I would be ashamed because they are such good people. But in comparison to Christ, it's sort of like the world record long jumper. Anybody know what the world record in the long jump is? 29 feet, 9 inches. For a long time, Bob Beeman held the record 29 feet, 2 inches. People thought, it'll never be broken. And then along comes someone who jumps 7 inches farther. So, Really, when we compare ourselves to him, 29 feet, 9 inches, oh, I, I might be lucky if I could get 10 feet in a long jump. But if he is required to jump from a pier in Los Angeles and expected to land on a pier in China, do you think he's going to make it? That's what our righteousness is like in comparison to God's. God's righteousness actually extends far beyond the Pacific Ocean. It's infinite. He's our creator. He's the perfect one. And so the very best we can do falls drastically short of the mark. And so when we accept through faith Christ's righteousness, we are baptized into him we have a righteousness that is indeed perfect. Paul says, I want to know Christ and I want to experience that kind of righteousness. It's interesting, when Paul was on the road to Damascus and Jesus confronted him there, it was noonday, but Jesus appeared brighter than the noonday sun and Paul fell to the ground and Jesus said to Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Interesting. Saul responded, who are you? I don't even know who you are. He said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And of course, 
Jesus wasn't physically present. How was Paul persecuting Jesus? By persecuting his body. Remember, when we believe we are in Christ, we are a part of his body. So when Paul was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ, in reality, he was persecuting Jesus. But Paul made that statement, who are you? And Jesus identified himself by name. And Paul, from that moment forward, began a journey where he intended to know Christ, to know who this God was, who this Savior was, who he, whom he had encountered on the road to Damascus. That was what Paul's passion was. And as Chris pointed out, during the worship and stewardship, when we have a passionate love for someone, when our hearts just are touched by, connected with, braided to that other person in love, we don't need a set of rules and regulations to tell us how we're supposed to interact with them, do we? We always want to do those things that please that other person. And that's how it is with the gospel of Jesus Christ. When, when you are impacted by uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you fall in love with him, the law doesn't really matter anymore because your love is what is going to drive your relationship with him. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. So it's this knowing Jesus Christ, knowing the truth, but knowing it in a personal way. Knowing Jesus personally, not religiously, not through observance, not through an exercise of routine that appeals to the flesh or that impresses other people, but through a relationship of the heart. Realizing, recognizing, understanding that there is this person out there who gave himself for us. God in the flesh who died for our sins and who rose for our justification. Who we can have a relationship. Who Paul says he wants to know. How about you? Do you want to know him? Do you want to know him? Okay. Well then... Listen to what Paul says. Paul says, I want to know Christ. And yes, the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow then attaining to the resurrection of the dead. So there it is. There is the target Paul is shooting for. Paul desires to experience the resurrection from the dead. And through knowledge of, through relationship with Jesus Christ, he wants to experience the power of his resurrection, the participation of his sufferings, and becoming like him in death. Now, there are three different applications to those different experiences that I want to talk about. The power of his, the power of his resurrection, the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Three different experiences that we have with those. First, by faith. When you come to Christ in faith, the power of his resurrection becomes yours. 
It's a possession that you have by faith. All of the things he suffered on your behalf, you possess. The death that he experienced for your sin, you too have experienced. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ now who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So those things you possess by faith as a Christian, just by believing in Jesus Christ. But in the reality of our lives today, you also can experience the power of his resurrection. You can participate in his sufferings. And you can be conformed to his death. It says in Romans chapter 11, or excuse me, chapter 8, verse 11, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. So you are going to, in your walk as a Christian, I can absolutely guarantee you this, you are going to experience moments, trials, situations that overwhelm you, that are far beyond your capacity as a human being to deal with. Now, I don't know exactly what that might be. It could be relational. It could be medical. It could be financial. I mean, the list is endless. But the same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you as a Christian. And listen to this. Understand this. The power of the resurrection is greater than the power of creation in Genesis 1.1 when God spoke forth and created the heavens and the earth. Because the power of the resurrection required the death of God's own Son in order for it to be carried out. So the power of the resurrection is the greatest power that exists in the seen and the unseen universe. And it dwells within each one of us. So in our lives, today, tomorrow, understand that when you're going through that difficult time, that hard thing, you have access to the power of His resurrection through faith. You also have the opportunity to participate in His sufferings. Now, it says in Isaiah chapter 53, that by his stripes we are healed. But it's interesting that the early Christians, when they experienced persecution, rejoiced at their opportunity to suffer on behalf of Christ. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the apostles were warned not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. But they told the Sanhedrin, they said, we've got to obey God rather than men. So they continued to proclaim the gospel. And as a result, they were scourged. They were beaten with a Roman cat of nine tails. And then they were released. And when they came back to their people, 
The Bible says that they rejoiced, that they were counted worthy to suffer on his behalf. Okay, now I like the power of resurrection part. This participation in his suffering deal, I'm not so sure that that's exactly how we understand that, how we experience it. If, if that were the case, do you think if you were beaten on, for the cause of Christ, would you rejoice? What, what about if you just go through tribulation? Your friends reject you because of your faith. Would you rejoice at that opportunity? That's what it says in, in Romans chapter 5. We glory Paul writes, in our tribulations because we know that our tribulations bring about perseverance and perseverance brings about hope and hope brings about the perfect work of God in our lives. So we get to participate in the sufferings. There will be times where you will suffer for the cause of Christ. My challenge to you and more specifically to me is that we take a different kind of view about what it means to suffer for Christ. We get to. We have the opportunity to. We have the privilege of suffering on his behalf. And then we become like him in his death. Romans chapter 12. Paul says that we are to be living sacrifices. Holy, acceptable to him. It's our reasonable or standard service of worship. We are to live our lives in a sacrificial fashion, understanding that there are many things that we have to die to, that we have to give up, that we have to remove or eradicate from our lives as a living sacrifice, walking with Christ. So, we experience the power of his resurrection, the participation in his sufferings, and becoming like him in his death by faith at the moment of our conversion, but by experience as we walk with him throughout our lives. But ultimately, in consummation, each one of these for the believer will be something that you absolutely will have happen in your life. You will be a part of the first resurrection. The resurrection into the body of Christ where the dead rise up from the grave and are called into His presence. Where those who are alive and remain are called into His presence and are translated from these bodies of corruption into incorruptible bodies. This mortality will put on immortality. We will be resurrected in an ultimate sense, into a universe, into a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. And we will have identification in his suffering and conforming to his death. All of those will be things that ultimately will consummate in our lives as Christians. This is the truth. This is what God has put out before us to take a hold of, to live out by faith, and to look forward to by hope. It's good news, church. 
That's why it's called the gospel. It's good news. And I want to conclude by asking you, have you found that field where there is a pearl of great price? If so, have you taken the steps necessary to purchase that field? Here it is. If you have not trusted by faith in Jesus Christ, if you are hearing my voice on the radio today and you have not trusted and committed your life to Christ, this is your moment. This is the opportunity that you have. Just as Paul there on the road to Damascus was confronted by the risen Christ and he said to him, Who are you? Lord, so too this morning you can know Jesus Christ risen from the dead as your Lord and Savior. All you have to do is say a simple prayer. Lord, I repent of my sin. Lord, I trust in your finished work. Your blood shed for my sin and your resurrection from the dead for my justification. Receive me, Lord. And he will do exactly that. And you will be baptized into the body of Christ and the power of the resurrection will become yours. The participation of his sufferings and becoming like him in death. You will know eternity with God. Who are you, Lord? Paul finished his walk in 2 Timothy writing, I have kept the faith. I have fought the good fight. Others of you here this morning are in that walk. You are walking the walk of faith. You are fighting the battle. But you don't take hold of the power of the resurrection that is available to you. In your struggles with discouragement, depression, with financial lack, whatever it might be, you need to take a hold of the power of the resurrection in your life. It says in chapter 4 of Philippians, we'll get to that in a few weeks, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But you've got to start the relationship. You've got to be in Christ. And you've got to take a hold of that. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every soul that hears my voice today. Pray for each and every one that does not know you, that has not trusted you by faith. I pray, Lord, that this would be their moment, that this would be their time. I pray also, Lord, for each and every one of us who in our walk of faith have struggled, who have stumbled, who have sometimes fallen short, Lord, of what you have made available to us. I pray that you would spur us on to love and to good works and that you would, uh, through each of our lives, Lord, make your truth known and that we would find joy in that. Bless each and every soul here today, Lord, with this message. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand up. And we're